Part Three of The Planet Savers by Marion Zimmer Bradley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Planet Savers, Part Three. It was hard climbing now on rock, and there were places where we had to scrabble for handholds and flatten ourselves out against an almost sheer wall. The keen wind rose as we climbed higher, whining through the thick forest, soughing in the rocky outcrops, and biting through our soaked clothing with icy teeth. Kendricks was having hard going now, and I helped him as much as I could, but I was aching with cold. We gained the clearing, a small bare spot on a lesser peak, and I directed the two Darkoven brothers, who were the driest, to gather dry brushwood and get a fire going. It was hardly near enough sunset to camp, but by the time we were dry enough to go on safely, it would be, so I gave orders to get the tent up, then rounded angrily on Kyla. "'See here! Another time don't try any dangerous tricks unless you're ordered to!' "'Go easy on her,' Regis Haster interceded. "'We'd never have crossed without the fixed rope. Good work, girl.' "'You keep out of this!' I snapped. It was true, yet resentment boiled in me as Kyla's plain, sullen face glowed under the praise from the Haster. The fact was, I admitted it grudgingly, a lightweight like Kyla ran less risk on an acrobat's bridge than in that kind of roaring current. That did not lessen my annoyance, and Regis Haster's interference and the foolish grin on the girl's face made me boil over. I wanted to question her further about the sight of trailmen on the bridge, but decided against it. We had been spared attack on the rapids, so it wasn't impossible that a group, not hostile, was simply watching our progress, maybe even aware that we were on a peaceful mission. But I didn't believe it for a minute. If I knew anything about the trailmen, it was this. One could not judge them by human standards at all. I tried to decide what I would have done, as a trailman, but my brain wouldn't run that way at the moment. The Darkoven brothers had built up the fire with a thoroughly reckless disregard of watching eyes. It seemed to me that the morale and fitness of the shivering crew was of more value at the moment than caution, and around the roaring fire, feeling my soaked clothes warming to the blaze and drinking boiling hot tea from a mug, it seemed that we were right. Optimism reappeared. Kyla, letting Hjalmar dress her hands which had been rubbed raw by the slipping lianas, made jokes with the men about her feat of acrobatics. We had made camp on the summit of an outlying arm of the main ridge of the Hellers, and the whole massive range lay before our eyes, turned to a million colors in the declining sun. Green and turquoise and rose, the mountains were even more beautiful than I remembered. The shoulder of the high slope we had just climbed had obscured the real mountain massive from our sight, and I saw Kendrick's eyes widen as he realized that this high summit we had just mastered was only the first step of the task which lay before us. The real ridge rose ahead, thickly forested on the lower slopes, then strewn with rock and granite like the landscape of an airless, deserted moon. And above the rock there were straight walls capped with blinding snow and ice. 
Down one peak a glacier flowed, a waterfall, a cascade shockingly arrested in motion. I murmured the trailman's name for the mountain, aloud, and translated it for the others. The Wall Around the World. Good name for it, Laris murmured, coming with his mug in his hand to look at the mountain. Jason, the big peak there has never been climbed, has it? I can't remember. My teeth were shattering, and I went back toward the fire. Regis surveyed the distant glacier and murmured, It doesn't look too bad. There could be a route along the western arete. Hjalmar, weren't you with the expedition that climbed and mapped High Kimby? The giant nodded, rather proudly. We got within a hundred feet of the top, then a snowstorm came up and we had to turn back. Some day we'll tackle the wall around the world. It's been tried, but no one ever climbed the peak. No one ever will, Laris stated positively. There's two hundred feet of sheer rock cliff, Prince Regis. You need wings to get up. And there's the avalanche ledge they call Hell's Alley. Kendricks broke in irritably. I don't care whether it's ever been climbed or ever will be climbed. We're not going to climb it now. He stared at me and added, I hope. We're not. I was glad of the interruption. If the youngsters and amateurs wanted to amuse themselves plotting hypothetical attacks on unclimbable Sierras, that was all very well. But it was, if nothing worse, a great waste of time. I showed Kendricks a notch in the ridge, thousands of feet lower than the peaks, and well sheltered from the icefalls on either side. That's Damerung. We're going through there. We won't be on the mountain at all, and it's less than twenty-two thousand feet high in the pass, although there are some bad ledges and washes. We'll keep clear of the main tree roads if we can, and all the mapped trailmen's villages, but we may run into wandering bands. Abruptly I made my decision and gestured them around me. From this point, I broke the news, we're liable to be attacked. Kyla, tell them what you saw. She put down her mug. Her face was serious again, as she related what she had seen on the bridge. We're on a peaceful mission, but they don't know that yet. The thing to remember is that they do not wish to kill, only to wound and rob. If we show fight—she displayed a short, ugly knife, which she tucked matter-of-factly into her shirt-front—they will run away again. Laris loosened a narrow dagger which until this moment I had thought purely ornamental. He said, "'Mind if I say something more, Jason? I remember from the Nar campaign. The trailmen fight at close quarters, and by human standards they fight dirty.' He looked around fiercely, his unshaven face glinting as he grinned. "'One more thing. I like elbow room. Do we have to stay roped together when we start out again?' I thought it over. His enthusiasm for a fight made me feel both annoyed and curiously delighted. "'I won't make anyone stay roped who thinks he'd be safer without it,' I said. "'We'll decide that when the time comes anyway. But personally, the trailmen are used to running along narrow ledges, and we're not. Their first tactic 
would probably be to push us off one by one. If we're roped, we can fend them off better. I dismissed the subject, adding, Just now, the important thing is to dry out. Kendricks remained at my side after the others had gathered around the fire, looking into the thick forest which sloped up to our campsite. He said, This place looks as if it had been used for a camp before. Aren't we just as vulnerable to attack here as we would be anywhere else? He had hit on the one thing I hadn't wanted to talk about. This clearing was altogether too convenient. I only said, At least there aren't so many ledges to push us off. Kendricks muttered, You've got the only blaster. I left it at Carthon, I said truthfully. Then I laid down the law. Listen, Buck, if we kill a single trailman, except in hand-to-hand fight in self-defense, we might as well pack up and go home. We're on a peaceful mission, and we're begging a favor. Even if we're attacked, we kill only as a last resort and in hand-to-hand combat. Damned primitive frontier planet! Would you rather die of the trailman's disease? He said savagely. We're apt to catch it anyway, here. You're immune. You don't care. You're safe. The rest of us are on a suicide mission. And damn it, when I die, I want to take a few of those monkeys with me. I bent my head, bit my lip, and said nothing. Buck couldn't be blamed for the way he felt. After a moment, I pointed to the notch in the ridge again. It's not so far. Once we get through Damarung, it's easy going into Trailman City. Beyond there, it's all civilized. Maybe you call it civilization, Kendrick said, and turned away. Come on, let's finish drying our feet. And at that moment, they hit us. Kendrick's yell was the only warning I had before I was fighting away something scrabbling up my back. I whirled and ripped the creature away and saw dimly that the clearing was filled to the rim with an explosion of furry white bodies. I cupped my hands and yelled, in the only trailman dialect I knew, "'Hold off! We come in peace!' One of them yelled something unintelligible and plunged at me. Another tribe! I saw a white-furred, chinless face, contorted in rage, a small, ugly knife, a female— I ripped out my own knife, fending away a savage slash. Something tore white-hot across the knuckles of my hand. The fingers went limp, and my knife fell, and the trailman woman snatched it up and made off with her prize, swinging lithely upward into the treetops. I searched quickly, gripped with my good hand at the bleeding knuckles, and found Regis Haster struggling at the edge of a ledge with a pair of the creatures. The crazy thought ran through my mind that if they killed him, all Darkover would rise and exterminate the trailmen, and it would all be my fault. Then Regis tore one hand free and made a curious motion with his fingers. It looked like an immense green spark a foot long, or like a fireball. It exploded in one creature's white face, and she gave a wild howl of terror and anguish, scrabbled blindly at her eyes, and with a despairing shriek ran for the shelter of the trees. 
The pack of trailmen gave a long, formless wail, and then they were gathering, flying, retreating into the shadows. Rafe yelled something obscene, and then a bolt of bluish flame lanced toward the retreating pack. One of the humanoids fell without a cry, pitching senseless over the ledge. I ran toward Rafe, struggling with him for the shocker he had drawn from its hiding-place inside his shirt. "'You blind damn fool!' I cursed him. "'You may have ruined everything!' "'They'd have killed him without it!' he retorted wrathfully. He had evidently failed to see how efficiently Regis defended himself. Rafe motioned toward the fleeing pack and sneered, "'Why don't you go with your friends?' With a grip I thought I had forgotten, I got my hand around Rafe's knuckles and squeezed. His hand went limp, and I snatched the shocker and pitched it over the ledge. "'One word, and I'll pitch you after it,' I warned. "'Who's hurt?' Garin was blinking senselessly, half-dazed by a blow. Regis's forehead had been gashed and dripped blood, and Hjalmar's thigh sliced in a clean cut. My own knuckles were laid bare, and the hand was getting numb. It was a little while before anybody noticed Kyla, crouched over speechless with pain. She reeled and turned deathly white when we touched her. We stretched her out where she was, and got her shirt off, and Kendricks crowded up beside us to examine the wound. A clean cut, he said, but I didn't hear. Something had turned over inside me like a hand stirring up my brain, and—' J. Allison looked around with a gasp of sudden vertigo. He was not in Forth's office, but standing precariously near the edge of a cliff. He shut his eyes briefly, wondering if he were having one of his worst nightmares, and opened them on a familiar face. Buck Kendricks was bone-white, his mouth widening as he said hoarsely, "'Jay! Dr. Allison!' For God's sake!" A doctor's training creates reactions that are almost reflexes. J. Allison recovered some degree of sanity as he became aware that someone was stretched out in front of him, half-naked and bleeding profusely. He motioned away the crowding strangers and said in his bad Darkoven, "'Let her alone. This is my work.' He didn't know enough words to curse them away, so he switched to Terran, speaking to Kendricks. Buck, get these people away. Give the patient some air. Where's my surgical case? He bent and probed briefly, realizing only now that the injured was a woman and young. The wound was only a superficial laceration. Whatever sharp instrument had inflicted it had turned on the costal bone without penetrating lung tissue. It could have been sutured, but Kendricks handed him only a badly filled first aid kit so Dr. Allison covered it tightly with a plastic clip-shield which should seal it from further bleeding, and let it alone. By the time he had finished, the strange girl had begun to stir. She said, haltingly, "'Jason?' "'Dr. Allison,' he corrected tersely, surprised in a minor way. The major surprise had blurred the lesser ones, that she knew his name." Kendrick spoke swiftly to the girl in one of the Darkoven languages Jay didn't understand, and then drew Jay aside, out of earshot. He said in a shaken voice, "'Jay, I didn't know. 
I wouldn't have believed. You're Dr. Allison? Good Lord! Jason! And then he moved fast. What's the matter? Oh, hell, Jay, don't faint on me! Jay was aware that he didn't come out of it too bravely, but anyone who blamed him, he thought resentfully, should try it on for size. Going to sleep in a comfortably closed-in office, and waking up on a cliff at the outer edges of nowhere. His hand hurt. He saw that it was bleeding, and flexed it experimentally, trying to determine that no tendons had been injured. He rapped, "'How did this happen?' "'Sir, keep your voice down, or speak Darkoven.' Jay blinked again. Kendricks was still the only familiar thing in a strangely vertiginous universe. The Space Force man said huskily, "'Before heaven, Jay, I hadn't any idea. And I've known you how long? Eight, nine years?' Jay said, "'That idiot fourth!' and swore the colorless profanity of an indoor man. Somebody shouted, "'Jason!' in an imperative voice and Kendrick said shakily, "'Jay, if they see you, you literally are not the same man.' "'Obviously not.' Jay looked at the tent, one pole still unpitched. "'Anyone in there?' "'Not yet.' Kendricks almost shoved him aside. "'I'll tell them. I'll tell them something.' He took a radiant from his pocket, set it down, and stared at Allison in the flickering light and said something profane. "'You'll... you'll be all right here?' Jay nodded. It was all he could manage. He was keeping a tight hold on his nerve. If it went, he'd start to rave like a madman. A little time passed, there were strange noises outside, and then there was a polite cough and a man walked into the tent. He was obviously a dark-oven aristocrat and looked vaguely familiar though Jay had no conscious memory of seeing him before. Tall and slender, he possessed that perfect and exquisite masculine beauty sometimes seen among Darkovans, and he spoke to Jay familiarly but with surprising courtesy. "'I have told them you are not to be disturbed for a moment, that your hand is worse than we believed. A surgeon's hands are delicate things, Dr. Allison, and I hope that yours are not badly injured.' Will you let me look?" Jay Allison drew back his hand automatically, then, conscious of the churlishness of the gesture, let the stranger take it in his and look at the fingers. The man said, "'It does not seem serious. I was sure it was something more than that.' He raised grave eyes. "'You don't even remember my name, do you, Dr. Allison?' "'You know who I am?' Dr. Forth didn't tell me. But we Hasters are partly telepathic, Jason. Forgive me, Dr. Allison. I have known from the first that you were possessed by a god or demon." "'Superstitious rubbish!' Jay snapped. "'Typical of a Darkoven!' "'It is a convenient manner of speaking, no more,' said the young Haster, overlooking the rudeness. I suppose I could learn your terminology if I considered it worth the effort. I have had psi-training, and I can tell the difference when half of a man's soul has driven out the other half. Perhaps I can restore you to yourself." 
If you think I'd have some dark-oven freak meddling with my mind—' Jay began hotly, then stopped. Under Regis' grave eyes, he felt a surge of unfamiliar humility. This crew of men needed their leader, and obviously he, Jay Allison, wasn't the leader they needed. He covered his eyes with one hand. Regis bent and put a hand on his shoulder, compassionately, but Jay twitched it off, and his voice, when he found it, was bitter and defensive and cold. "'All right. The work's the thing. I can't do it. Jason can. You're a parasite. If you can switch me off, go right ahead.' I stared at Regis, passing a hand across my forehead. "'What happened?' I demanded, and in even swifter apprehension, "'Where's Kyla? She was hurt.' "'Kyla's all right,' Regis said, but I got up quickly to make sure. Kyla was outside, lying quite comfortably on a roll of blankets. She was propped on her elbow, drinking something hot, and there was a good smell of hot food in the air. I stared at Regis and demanded, "'I didn't conk out, did I, from a little scratch like this?' I looked carelessly at my gashed hand. "'Wait!' Regis held me back. "'Don't go out just yet. Do you remember what happened, Dr. Allison?' I stared in growing horror, my worst fear confirmed. Regis said quietly, "'You changed. Probably from the shock of seeing—' He stopped in mid-sentence, and I said, "'The last thing I remember is seeing that Kyla was bleeding, when we got her clothes off. But, good gods, a little blood wouldn't scare me, and J. Allison's a surgeon. Would it bring him roaring up like that?' "'I couldn't say.' Regis looked as if he knew more than he was telling. "'I don't believe that Dr. Allison—he's not much like you—was very concerned with Kyla. Are you?' "'Damn right I am. I want to make sure she's all right.' I stopped abruptly. "'Regis, did they all see it?' "'Only Kendricks and I,' Regis said, and we will not speak of it. I said, "'Thanks,' and felt his reassuring hand-clasp. Damn it, demigod or prince, I liked Regis. I went out and accepted some food from the kettle and sat down between Kyla and Kendricks to eat. I was shaken, weak with reaction. Furthermore, I realized that we couldn't stay here. It was too vulnerable to attack. So, in our present condition, were we. If we could push on hard enough to get near Damerung past tonight, then tomorrow we could cross it early, before the sun warmed the snow and we had snowslides and slush to deal with. Beyond Damerung, I knew the tribesmen and could speak their language. I mentioned this, and Kendricks looked doubtfully at Kyla. "'Can she climb?' "'Can she stay here?' I countered, but I went and sat beside her anyhow. "'How badly are you hurt? Do you think you can travel?' She said fiercely, "'Of course I can climb. I tell you I'm no weak girl. I'm a free Amazon.' She flung off the blanket somebody had tucked around her legs. Her lips looked a little pinched, 
but the long stride was steady as she walked to the fire and demanded more soup. We struck the camp in minutes. The trailman band of raiding females had snatched up almost everything portable, and there was no sense in striking and cashing the tent. They'd return and hunt it out. If we came back with a trailman escort, we wouldn't need it anyway. I ordered them to leave everything but the lightest gear, and examined each remaining rucksack. Rations for the night we would spend in the pass, our few remaining blankets, ropes, sunglasses. Everything else I ruthlessly ordered left behind. It was harder going now. For one thing, the sun was lowering, and the evening wind was icy. Nearly every one of us had some hurt, slight in itself, which hindered us in climbing. Kyla was white and rigid, but did not spare herself. Kendricks was suffering severely from mountain sickness at this altitude, and I gave him all the help I could, but with my stiffening slashed hand I wasn't having too easy a time myself. There was one expanse that was sheer rock-climbing, flattened like bugs against a wall, scrabbling for handholds and footholds. I felt it a point of pride to lead, and I led. But by the time we had climbed the thirty-foot wall, and scrambled along a ledge to where we could pick up the trail again, I was ready to give over. Crowding together on the ledge, I changed places with the veteran Laris, who was better than most professional climbers. He muttered, "'I thought you said this was a trail.' I stretched my mouth in what was supposed to be a grin, and didn't quite make it. For the trailman, this is a superhighway, and no one else ever comes this way. Now we climbed slowly over snow, once or twice we had to flounder through drifts, and once a brief bitter snowstorm blotted out sight for twenty minutes while we hugged each other on the ledge, clinging wildly against wind and icy sleet. We bivouacked that night in a crevasse blown almost clean of snow well above the tree-line, where only scrubby, unkillable thorn-bushes clustered. We tore down some of them and piled them up as a windbreak, and bedded beneath it, but we all thought with aching regret of the comfort of the camp-gear we'd abandoned. The going had gotten good and rough. That night remains in my mind as one of the most miserable in memory. Except for the slight ringing in my ears, the height alone did not bother me but the others did not fare so well. Most of the men had blinding headaches. Kyla's slashed side must have given her considerable pain, and Kendrick's had succumbed to mountain sickness in its most agonizing form, severe cramps and vomiting. I was desperately uneasy about all of them, but there was nothing I could do. The only cure for mountain sickness is oxygen or a lower altitude, neither of which was practical. In the windbreak we doubled up, sharing blankets and body warmth. I took a last look around the close space before crawling in beside Kendrick's, and saw the girl bedding down slightly apart from the others. I started to say something, but Kendrick spoke first, voicing my thoughts. "'Better crawl in with us, girl,' he added, coldly, but not unkindly. "'You needn't worry about any funny stuff.' Kyla gave me just the flicker of a grin and I realized she was including me on the Darkoven side of a joke against this big man who was so unaware of Darkoven etiquette. 
but her voice was cool and curt as she said, "'I'm not worrying,' and loosened her heavy coat slightly before creeping into the nest of blankets between us. It was painfully cramped and chilly in spite of the self-heating blankets. We crowded close together and Kyla's head rested on my shoulder. I felt her snuggle closely to me, half asleep, hunting for a warm place. And I found myself very much aware of her closeness, curiously grateful to her. An ordinary woman would have protested, if only as a matter of form, sharing blankets with two strange men. I realized that if Kyla had refused to crawl in with us, she would have called attention to her sex much more than she did by matter-of-factly behaving as if she were, in fact, male. She shivered convulsively, and I whispered, "'Side-hurting? Are you cold?' "'A little. It's been a long time since I've been at these altitudes, too. What it really is, I can't get those women out of my head.' Hendricks coughed and moved uncomfortably. I don't understand those creatures who attacked us. All women?" I explained briefly. Among the people of the sky, as everywhere, more females are born than males. But the trailmen's lives are so balanced that they have no room for extra females within the nests, the cities. So when a girl-child of the sky people reaches womanhood, the other women drive her out of the city with kicks and blows and she has to wander in the forest until some male comes after her and claims her and brings her back as his own. Then she can never be driven forth again, although, if she bears no children, she can be forced to be a servant to his other wives." Kendricks made a little sound of disgust. "'You think it's cruel,' Kyla said with sudden passion, "'but in the forest they can live and find their own food. They will not starve or die.' Many of them prefer the forest life to living in the nests, and they will fight away any male who comes near them. We who call ourselves human often make less provision for our spare women." She was silent, sighing as if with pain. Kendricks made no reply except a non-committal grunt. I held myself back by main force from touching Kyla, remembering what she was, and finally said, "'We better quit talking. The others want to sleep, if we don't." After a time I heard Kendrick's snoring and Kyla's quiet, even breaths. I wondered drowsily how Jay would have felt about this situation, he who hated Darkover and avoided contact with every other human being, crowded between a Darkoven free Amazon and half a dozen assorted roughnecks. I turned the thought off fearing it might somehow re-arouse him in his brain. But I had to think of something, anything, to turn aside this consciousness of the woman's head against my chest, her warm breath coming and going against my bare neck. Only by the severest possible act of will did I keep myself from slipping my hand over her breasts, warm and palpable through the thin sweater. I wondered why Forth had called me undisciplined. I couldn't risk my leadership by making advances to our contracted guide, woman, Amazon, or whatever. Somehow the girl seemed to be the pivot point of all my thoughts. She was not part of the Terran HQ. She was not part of any world J. Allison might have known. 
She belonged wholly to Jason, to my world. Between sleep and waking, I lost myself in a dream of skimming flightwise along the tree roads, chasing the distant form of a girl driven from the nest that day with blows and curses. Somewhere in the leaves I would find her, and we would return to the city, her head garlanded with the red leaves of a chosen one, and the same women who had stoned her forth would crowd about and welcome her when she returned. The fleeing woman looked over her shoulder with Kyla's eyes, and then the woman's form muted and Dr. Forth was standing between us in the tree-road, with the caduceus emblem on his coat stretched like a red staff between us. Kendricks in his Space Force uniform was threatening us with a blaster, and Regis Haster was suddenly wearing Space Service uniform too, and saying, J. Allison, J. Allison, as the tree-road splintered and cracked beneath our feet, and we were stumbling down the waterfall and down and down and down. "'Wake up!' Kyla whispered, and dug an elbow into my side. I opened my eyes on crowded blackness, grasping at vanishing nightmare. "'What's the matter?' "'You were moaning. Touch of altitude sickness?' I grunted, realizing my arm was around her shoulder, and pulled it quickly away. After a while I slept again, fitfully. Before light we crawled wearily out of the bivouac, cramped and stiff and not rested, but ready to get out of this and go on. The snow was hard in the dim light, and the trail not difficult here. After all the trouble on the lower slopes, I think even the amateurs had lost their desire for adventurous climbing. We were all just as well pleased that the actual crossing of Damerung should be an anticlimax and uneventful. The sun was just rising when we reached the pass, and we stood for a moment, gathered close together, in the narrow defile between the great summits to either side. Hjalmar gave the peaks a wistful look. Wish we could climb them. Regis grinned at him companionably. Sometime, and you have the word of a haster, you'll be along on that expedition. The young fellow's eyes glowed. Regis turned to me and said warmly, "'What about it, Jason? A bargain? Shall we all climb it together next year?' I started to grin back, and then some bleak black devil surged up in me, raging. When this was over I suddenly realized I wouldn't be there. I wouldn't be anywhere. I was a surrogate, a substitute, a splinter of J. Allison, and when it was over Forth and his tactics would put me back into what they considered my rightful place, which was nowhere. I'd never climb a mountain except now, when we were racing against time and necessity. I set my mouth in an unaccustomed narrow line and said, "'We'll talk about that when we get back, if we ever do. Now I suggest we get going. Some of us would like to get down to lower altitudes.' The trail down from Damerung inside the ridge, unlike the outside trail, was clear and well marked, and we wound down the slope, walking in an easy single file. As the mist thinned and we left the snow line behind, we saw what looked like a great green carpet, interspersed with shining colors which were mere flickers below us. I pointed them out. The treetops of the North Forest! and the colors you see are in the streets of the trail city. 
An hour's walking brought us to the edge of the forest. We traveled swiftly now, forgetting our weariness, eager to reach the city before nightfall. It was quiet in the forest, almost ominously still. Over our heads somewhere, in the thick branches, which in places shut out the sunlight completely, I knew that the tree-roads ran criss-cross, and now and again I heard some rustle, a fragment of sound, a voice, a snatch of song. "'It's so dark down here,' Rafe muttered. "'Anyone living in this forest would have to live in the treetops, or go totally blind.' Kendricks whispered to me, "'Are we being followed? Are they going to jump us?' "'I don't think so. What you hear are just the inhabitants of the city, going about their daily business up there.' "'Queer business it must be,' Regis said, curiously. And as we walked along the mossy, needly forest floor, I told him something of the trailmen's lives. I had lost my fear. If anyone came at us now, I could speak their language. I could identify myself, tell my business, name my foster parents. Some of my confidence evidently spread to the others. But as we came into more and more familiar territory, I stopped abruptly and struck my hand against my forehead. I knew we had forgotten something," I said roughly. I've been away from here too long, that's all. Kyla. What about Kyla? The girl explained it herself, in her expressionless monotone. I am an unattached female. Such women are not permitted in the nests. That's easy, then, Lara said. She must belong to one of us. He didn't add a syllable. No one could have expected it. Darkoven aristocrats don't bring their women on trips like this, and their women are not like Kyla. The three brothers broke into a spate of volunteering, and Rafe made an obscene suggestion. Kyla scowled obstinately, her mouth tight with what could have been embarrassment or rage. "'If you believe I need your protection—Kyla!' I said tersely is under my protection. She will be introduced as my woman and treated as such." Rafe twisted his mouth in an unfunny smile. "'I see the leader keeps all the best for himself.' My face must have done something I didn't know about, for Rafe backed slowly away. I forced myself to speak slowly. "'Kyla is a guide, and indispensable. If anything happens to me, she is the only one who can lead you back. Therefore, her safety is my personal affair. Understand?" As we went along the trail, the vague green light disappeared. "'We're right below the trail city,' I whispered, and pointed upward. All around us the hundred trees rose, branchless pillars so immense that four men, hands joined, could not have encircled one with their arms. They stretched upward for some three hundred feet, before stretching out their interweaving branches. Above that nothing was visible but blackness. Yet the grove was not dark, but lighted with the startlingly brilliant phosphorescence of the fungi growing on the trunks, and trimmed into bizarre ornamental shapes. In cages of transparent fiber glowing insects as large as a hand hummed softly and continuously. As I watched, a trailman, 
quite naked except for an ornate hat and a narrow binding around the loins, descended the trunk. He went from cage to cage, feeding the glowworms with bits of shining fungus from a basket on his arm. I called to him in his own language, and he dropped the basket, with an exclamation, his spidery thin body braced to flee or to raise an alarm. But I belong to the nest, I called to him, and gave him the names of my foster parents. He came toward me, gripping my forearm with warm long fingers in a gesture of greeting. Jason, yes, I heard them speak of you, he said in his gentle twittering voice. You are at home. But those others, he gestured nervously at the strange faces. My friends, I assured him, and we come to beg the old one for an audience. For tonight I seek shelter with my parents, if they will receive us. He raised his head and called softly, and a slim child bounded down the trunk and took the basket. The trailman said, I am Caro. Perhaps it would be better if I guided you to your foster parents, so you will not be challenged." I breathed more freely. I did not personally recognize Caro, but he looked pleasantly familiar. Guided by him, we climbed one by one up the dark stairway inside the trunk, and emerged into the bright square, shaded by the topmost leaves into a delicate green twilight. I felt weary and successful. Kendrick stepped gingerly on the swaying, jiggling floor of the square. It gave slightly at every step, and Kendrick swore morosely in a language that fortunately only Rafe and I understood. Curious trailmen flocked to the street and twittered welcome and surprise. Rafe and Kendricks betrayed considerable contempt when I greeted my foster parents affectionately. They were already old, and I was saddened to see it their fur graying, their prehensile toes and fingers crooked with a rheumatic complaint of some sort, their reddish eyes bleared and roomy. They welcomed me and made arrangements for the others in my party to be housed in an abandoned house nearby. They had insisted that I, of course, must return to their roof, and Kyla, of course, had to stay with me. "'Couldn't we camp on the ground instead?' Kendricks asked, eyeing the flimsy shelter with distaste. It would offend our hosts," I said firmly. I saw nothing wrong with it. Roofed with woven bark, carpeted with moss which was planted on the floor, the place was abandoned, somewhat a bit musty, but weather-tight and seemed comfortable to me. The first thing to be done was to dispatch a messenger to the old one, begging the favor of an audience with him. That done, by one of my foster-brothers, we settled down to a meal of buds, honey, insects, and bird eggs. It tasted good to me, with the familiarity of food eaten in childhood, but among the others only Kyla ate with appetite and Regis Haster with interested curiosity. After the demands of hospitality had been satisfied, my foster parents asked the names of my party, and I introduced them one by one. When I named Regis Haster, it reduced them to brief silence, and then to an outcry. Gently but firmly, they insisted that their home was unworthy to shelter the son of a Haster, and that he must be fittingly entertained at the royal nest of the old one. There was no gracious way for Regis to protest, and when the messenger returned, he prepared to accompany him. 
but before leaving he drew me aside. I don't much like leaving the rest of you. You'll be safe enough. It's not that I'm worried about, Dr. Allison. Call me Jason, I corrected angrily. Regis said, with a little tightening of his mouth, That's it. You'll have to be Dr. Allison tomorrow when you tell the old one about your mission. But you have to be the Jason he knows, too. So? I wish I needn't leave here. I wish you were going to stay with the men who know you only as Jason, instead of being alone or only with Kyla. There was something odd in his face, and I wondered at it. Could he, a Haster, be jealous of Kyla? Jealous of me? It had never occurred to me that he might somehow be attracted to Kyla. I tried to pass it off lightly. Kyla might divert me, Regis said without emphasis. Yet she brought Dr. Allison back once before. Then, surprisingly, he laughed. Or maybe you're right. Maybe Kyla will scare away Dr. Allison if he shows up. The coals of the dying fire laid strange tints of color on Kyla's face and shoulders and the wispy waves of her dark hair. Now that we were alone, I felt constrained. "'Can't you sleep, Jason?' I shook my head. "'Better sleep while you can.' I felt that this night of all nights I dared not close my eyes, or when I woke I would have vanished into the J. Allison I hated. For a moment I saw the room with his eyes. To him it would not seem cozy and clean, but—habituated to white sterile tile, Terran rooms and corridors, dirty and unsanitary as any beast's den. Kyla said broodingly, "'You're a strange man, Jason. What sort of man are you, in Terra's world?' I laughed, but there was no mirth in it. Suddenly I had to tell her the whole truth. "'Kyla, the man you know as me, doesn't exist. I was created for this one specific task. Once it's finished, so am I." She started, her eyes widening. "'I've heard tales of—of the Terrans and their sciences, that they make men who aren't real, men of metal, not bone and flesh." Before the dawning of that naive horror I quickly held out my bandaged hand, took her fingers in mine, and ran them over it. "'Is this metal? No, no, Kyla. But the man you know as Jason, I won't be him. I'll be someone different. How could I explain a subsidiary personality to Kyla, when I didn't understand it myself? She kept my fingers in her softly, and said, I saw someone else looking from your eyes at me once, a ghost. I shook my head savagely. To the Terrans I'm the ghost. Poor ghost, she whispered. Her pity stung. I didn't want it. What I don't remember, I can't regret. Probably I won't even remember you. But I lied. I knew that, although I forgot everything else, unregretting because unremembered, I could not bear to lose this girl, that my ghost would walk restless forever if I forgot her. 
I looked across the fire at Kyla, cross-legged in the faint light, only a few coals in the brazier. She had removed her sexless outer clothing and wore some clinging garment, as simple as a child's smock and curiously appealing. There was still a little ridge of bandage visible beneath it, and a random memory, not mine, remarked in the back corners of my brain that with the cut improperly sutured there would be a visible scar. Visible to whom? She reached out an appealing hand. Jason! Jason! End of Part 3